Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. Is democracy now? This feels like a bucket of cold water. We don't know what to do now. We were told Title 42 has been prolonged. The Supreme Court's conservative majority has ordered the Biden administration to continue enforcing Title 42, blocking asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll go to El Paso for a response. Then to Buffalo, New York, where the death toll from this weekend's historic blizzard has climbed to at least 31 as people froze to death in their homes and cars, thousands left without power, heat or food, pleading for help from officials as the mayor complained about looting. I just want to add that people who are out looting when people are losing their lives in this harsh winter storm is just absolutely reprehensible. Uh, I don't know how these people can even live with themselves, how they can look at themselves in the mirror. They are the lowest of, of the low. We'll get an update on what some are calling a Katrina moment in Buffalo from India Walton, the former Buffalo mayoral candidate, longtime community activist, and Carol Horn, a former Buffalo police officer arrested during the storm. Then thousands of Southwest Airlines passengers remain stranded across the country amidst an unprecedented operational meltdown. There are no flights available for three, four, five days on Southwest. So if I could reschedule and go home another time, it, right now it's noon on Saturday. And that's a long way away for me, which I need to get back so I can get to work. As the transportation secretary calls for an investigation, we'll get response from Southwest Airline Flight Attendance Union and from the president of Flyers Rights. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Supreme Court's ordered the Biden administration to continue enforcing the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy while it prepares to hear oral arguments by Republican-led states challenging its termination. The court will determine the policy's fate in its next session, which begins in February. This comes after a lower court had allowed Biden officials to end the policy earlier this month. Title 42 has been used to expel over 2 million migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border since March 2020, blocking them from seeking asylum. Thousands remain stranded in Mexico, often in extremely dangerous conditions. We'll have more on these latest developments after headlines. In Buffalo, New York, the death toll from this weekend's historic blizzard climbed to at least 31, with nationwide fatalities surpassing 60 people. State and military police were deployed to Buffalo Tuesday to enforce Buffalo's driving ban as road conditions remain treacherous. Erie County Chief Executive Mark Polencars pleaded with residents to stay off the roads. 
blocked right now that have no access whatsoever. And people are trying to drive into on these roads or trying to get into these neighborhoods, and they can't. Please, please, you heard the mayor beg. I'm begging. Stay home. Meanwhile, the air travel chaos caused by the Christmas snowstorm has left thousands stuck at airports around the country. The Secretary of Transportation says they will investigate flight cancellations and delays by Southwest Airlines, which has canceled around two-thirds of its flights since the storm. This is a Southwest passenger at Los Angeles International Airport. I was on the phone for like four hours um, on hold, no answer. So we woke up this morning. I said, let's just come to the airport to see what's going on. So clearly the flights are canceled, 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 and more canceled. These amazing people that have come to work, they don't deserve our frustration of having to get home. Southwest workers and union members say the company had ignored warnings that software is out of date and unable to handle such disruptions. Ninety percent of the cancellations were Southwest. We'll have the latest from Buffalo and the situation at Southwest Airlines later in the broadcast. The House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection released a new batch of transcripts Tuesday, including the explosive testimony from Trump staffer Cassidy Hutchinson, who said former chief of staff Mark Meadows burned documents in his office fireplace once or twice a week in the final weeks of the Trump administration. The transcripts confirm earlier reports that Hutchinson said at least two of the burnings came after meetings with Congress member Scott Perry, who's been linked to a plan to use the Justice Department to overturn Trump's 2020 loss. Meanwhile, Trump's director of personnel testified the former president considered blanket pardons for people facing charges linked to the Capitol attack. William Walker, now the House Sergeant at Arms and then head of the D.C. National Guard, told lawmakers in his deposition, quote, I'm African-American. I think would have been vastly different response if those were African-Americans trying to breach the Capitol. You're looking at someone who gets stopped by police for driving a high-value government vehicle. No other reason, he said. Last week, the House committee recommended the Justice Department issue criminal charges against President Trump. The Kremlin's banned oil sales to any country that adheres to a $60 per barrel price cap on maritime imports of Russian crude imposed earlier this month by the G7. The European Union and others have imposed their own bans on such imports, but the cap affects third parties that use G7 and European Union vessels and companies. Meanwhile, climate activists in Germany have been staging protests to call out their government's revival of coal burning to make up for the loss of Russian gas previously supplied by the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Indian authorities say they're investigating the deadly fall of Russian sausage tycoon and politician Pavelantov from a hotel window in the eastern state of Odisha. One of Antov's travel companions died of an apparent heart attack at the same hotel two days earlier. 
Kosovo has closed its largest border crossing after protesters blocked it amidst mounting tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. Serbia said Tuesday its army has been put on high alert following weeks of protests and roadblocks. What started as a dispute over car license plates is now threatening to boil over, with Kosovo accusing Serbia of attempting to destabilize the country under the influence of Russia. Some 50,000 ethnic Serbs live in northern Kosovo but do not recognize Kosovo's independence. The arrest of a former Serbian police officer in northern Kosovo earlier this month has refueled the simmering tensions. In Indonesia, at least 185 Rohingya refugees reached western Aceh province Monday after their overcrowded wooden boat was adrift on the Admanan Sea for over a month without a working engine. Survivors said at least 26 refugees died at sea. The surviving passengers, including children, nearly starved, with so many malnourished and dehydrated they could barely walk. This is Shafiq Rahman, a Rohingya refugee speaking from a makeshift shelter in Indonesia. For Myanmar, we became refugees in Bangladesh. We cannot read Bengali. We were provided assistance from Bangladesh, and we came to Indonesia in a boat to make our lives better. Just a day earlier on Christmas, another boat carrying over 50 Rohingya refugees came ashore in Indonesia. The U.N. says the number of Rohingya refugees undertaking the dangerous trek by boat to Indonesia and other destinations in the region has increased sixfold in 2022. It's estimated over a million Rohingya Muslims have fled persecution in Burma since 2017, with most languishing in dangerous and squalid refugee camps in neighboring Bangladesh. The U.S. Military Academy at West Point has begun removing Confederate monuments from its New York State campus following a congressional review and Pentagon orders to take down or rename 13 Confederate assets and memorabilia. The removal includes a portrait of General Robert E. Lee, who was a graduate and superintendent of West Point. The Southern Poverty Law Center says over 230 Confederate symbols have been removed or renamed in the U.S. since May 2020 when racial justice protests went up the country. In Michigan, a federal judge sentenced a leader of the 2020 plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer to 16 years in prison. Adam Fox, who was convicted in August of kidnapping conspiracy and conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, is a member of the far-right anti-government Boogaloo Boys. Other Boogaloo members took part in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Another leader in the Whitmer kidnapping plot, Barry Croft, is being sentenced today. And in labor news, University of California graduate student workers ratified a new contract last Friday, putting an end to their historic six-week strike. The strike involved 48,000 student workers at all 10 UC campuses. The contract includes increases in salary, more child care support, and new measures to protect against bullying and harassment. But some union members rejected the new contract, including a majority of voters at the Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, and Merced campuses. Opponents say the economic gains don't go nearly far enough. The new agreement weakens the ability to organize and initial demands that would have benefited undocumented international disabled workers were sacrificed. Meanwhile, here in New York, part-time and non-tenure-track full-time faculty at Fordham University have overwhelmingly voted to authorize a strike starting January 30th if they're unable to reach a tentative agreement and a commitment to fair wages. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
Hundreds of migrants facing freezing cold temperatures and camps along the U.S.-Mexico border were among those closely watching a decision by the Supreme Court Tuesday on whether it would halt the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy, which has been used to expel over 2 million people at the border since March 2020, blocking them from seeking asylum. I would like to spend Christmas in a place where it is not cold. I would really like to have shelter, just as everyone here would like to spend Christmas under a roof, because the cold is strong. But on Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the Biden administration to continue enforcing Title 42 while it prepares to hear oral arguments in February by 19 mostly Republican-led states who are challenging Biden's push to end the policy. This is an asylum seeker from Venezuela responding to the news. This feels like a bucket of cold water. We don't know what to do now. We were told Title 42 has been prolonged. Conservative Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch sided with the three liberal justices in objecting to the ruling, with Justice Katenji Brown-Jackson and Gorsuch writing, quote, The current border crisis is not a COVID crisis, and courts should not be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts designed for one emergency only because elected officials have failed to address a different emergency. Unquote. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said the Biden administration will continue to enforce Title 42, but called it, quote, a public health measure, not an immigration enforcement measure, and said it, quote, should not be extended indefinitely. For more, we go to El Paso, Texas, to speak with Luis Chapado, journalist reporting from the U.S.-Mexico border. His latest Vice News article is headlined, Migrants Surging to the Border, Pray to God for End of Title IV. Luis, welcome back to Democracy Now! on this day after the Supreme Court ruling. Can you talk about what's happening on both sides of the border? You've been, of course, you're in El Paso and in Ciudad Juarez. Hi, Amy. Hi, um, Juan. Thank you for having me. And yes, I mean, unfortunately, um, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to keep in place Title 42. And I say unfortunately for tens of thousands of migrants um, stuck in Mexico. And I mean, these these uh, news came as a water uh, as a bucket of uh, ice water, you know, for, for them. They've been waiting since December 21st for the Title 42 to end, as they were told. And then they still had to wait for another week just to learn that Title 42 is going to keep in place. And they have really no plan. In Ciudad Juarez, we're talking about like more than 25,000 migrants, um, some of them sleeping in shelters, but not, not all of them have places um, in Ciudad Juarez shelters. So many are literally sleeping by the banks of the Rio Grande. Um, and in El Paso, the, the city is also overwhelmed by those who are waiting to be processed under the, their asylum-seeking uh, process. And many also, hundreds, are sleeping in the streets. And it's freezing outside um, here in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez border. And Luis, I wanted to ask you, we keep hearing the reports of this unprecedented surge of people trying to cross the border. But how many how much of this is actually uh, the same individuals trying several times uh, uh, or even dozens of times to cross the border and being uh, uh, 
caught and then and being sent back again? Uh, or, and how much of it is also just the fact that the border has been effectively closed now for uh, going on two years? Yes, I mean, to be perfectly honest, Title 42 is creating uh, a harsh situation at the border. Uh, it's not really that many of them are trying over and over to get across, although there are some that are trying uh, at least two times to to get across to hand themselves over to Border Patrol and then request for political asylum. Um, the, uh, the real uh, situation down here is that Title 42 is creating um, like a blockage for all of them. So they are uh, tens of thousands of migrants confused, forming lines along the, the U.S. border wall to wait to be processed by U.S. Border Patrol. The vast majority are not coming from 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 Venezuela because the Venezuelans know that they are they don't hold any chance to to stay in the U.S. to properly ask for political asylum. So it's really sad to see most Venezuelans staying in the Mexican side, just watching other migrants from from places like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, um, reaching out to Border Patrol agents and actually being processed while Venezuelans are immediately expelled back to Mexico under Title 42, um, and what I see immediately, it's like three hours after they get across and process their back, back in Mexico. And this is also creating another situation. This is a, this is a dream for um, smugglers and drug cartels in Mexico because they know many of them are going to get tired of waiting. Uh, they are disappointed and desperate, and they're going to go after them to, to, to be smuggled in. And could, uh, could you expand on that, the role of the Mexican cartels and human smuggling groups uh, taking advantage of the current situation? Definitely. Um, drug cartels in, in, in Mexico, particularly in Ciudad Juarez, have been preying on migrants since at least uh, last year. They've, uh, they, they know that they can make a lot of money. I recently interviewed one of the, um, one of the smugglers working for the Juarez cartel, the local cartel here in Ciudad Juarez. Uh, and what he said was that right now a migrant, and this is, uh, I'm quoting him, a migrant worth more than a kilo of cocaine. So this is, I mean, this is how they're looking at migrants in Mexico as, as merchandise, right? Um, so, and, and they know that if the border is actually blocked, if that border is actually closed for asylum seekers, because we have to remember that these are not migrants trying to unlawfully reach out to the U.S. These are asylum seekers looking to enter lawfully under the U.S. under the um, political asylum uh, policies. Um, if they are blocked from doing that, they're desperate to get away from uh, danger that they're facing on their countries, and they know that most of their countries can reach out uh, to them in Mexico. Um, so there, many of them, I interviewed about like 20, 25 uh, people last week in Ciudad Juarez, and literally half of them said that they were thinking on maybe staying in, in, in Mexico uh, if, if Title 42 was blocked. And the other half was actually thinking of handing themselves to smugglers to be smuggled into the U.S.
Luis, on Saturday, you tweeted, it's 20 degrees outside and hundreds of migrants who entered the country without being processed by Border Patrol are not being allowed in El Paso shelters that receive federal funding. The solution city officials is offering is to connect them to Border Patrol authorities to be processed. But that means that they'll get expelled immediately under Title 42. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, exactly. That was a really sad situation to learn from the migrants already here in El Paso. Many of them who didn't turn themselves into the Border Patrol authorities and who actually made their journey into the U.S. Um, unlawfully by crossing the river or jumping the border wall, and that they ended up in the streets of El Paso during these um, freezing temperatures all over this week. They have no place to go because uh, the shelters that are receiving funds from the federal government are not taking them um, in, uh, fearing that they will lose that federal funding. And many of the other shelters, like churches or um, shelters privately uh, run, are overwhelmed. They, they, they have no more place for, for all of them. So they have to sleep on the streets. And the city is um, providing them with, a, with an answer, which is basically go and turn yourself, yourself to the Border Patrol so they can process you. But that means that they will be immediately deported back to Mexico, back to where they started. And I mean, they paid probably around 10,000 US dollars to be smuggled in. Uh, and Luis Chaparro, could you uh, talk about the sudden rise in the last year or so of asylum seekers from Nicaragua uh, at the border? Generally speaking, uh, those who have come in, in previous years were from uh, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. And uh, we've heard about the, the Venezuelan surge, but now suddenly uh, Nicaraguans as well. Could you talk about yes. how they're being received at the border. Yeah, definitely. As, as, as we know, Latin America, many Latin America um, countries are facing difficult situations, a difficult reality right now, including uh, Venezuela and Nicaragua. Uh, many of the Nicaraguans getting to the border are being processed. And I've interviewed uh, many of them also in the streets of El Paso. They are at least half of them are getting received. It's, it's still confusing who are um, qualifying to get received under political asylum uh, process and who are uh, who of them are actually turned back into Mexico. The ones that are already here in El Paso are telling me that at least they are here, they feel safe, but they literally, they say, and I'm quoting them, the nightmare didn't end when I crossed the border because they still received a bunch of uh, insults and uh, racism by border authorities while getting um, hold on, uh, on ICE facilities. And it is until now that they feel a bit more of a relief in while they are in El Paso, but they are also clueless on where to go because many of them don't have um, anyone to receive them in, in, in the U.S. Um, in the case of, for example, Venezuela and Cuba, increase of uh, immigrants coming over the border, are, are, do they at all discuss U.S. sanctions imposed against their country, putting a stranglehold on the economy as well? 
Yes, exactly. Most of them, uh, I mean, most of them are running from a situation that was originated, of course, by the U.S. policies against their own countries. Um, the, the people from, from Venezuela, they're fleeing from uh, from starving uh, in, in, in their own country. They're fleeing from um, gangs. They're fleeing uh, from government policies as well as Nicaraguans. Um, a couple of Nicaraguans I interviewed is a father and um, an 11-year-old kid who were, went out to the streets to protest against the government. And he, the, the father was uh, taken by the police. He was tortured inside uh, official uh, facilities um, until he was let out because of his medical situation. He was badly hurt. And he decided that he needed to leave because he knew that he was going to get killed uh, by the military in Nicaragua. So now he's now he's here. Um, but, and, and, but Venezuelans are facing a, a different situation. Um, there are no diplomatic relationships between the U.S., and Venezuela, so if they're fleeing their country for being a target uh, of their own government, which will apply under the political asylum policies, um, they cannot be turned back um, to, to their countries of origin. And so that's what they're, they're gonna have to stay in Mexico um, under Title 42. They, they're not allowed in the U.S. They have to wait for the process in Mexican soil. And very quickly, Luis, we last talked to you when you followed a bus uh, sent by the Texas governor to uh, Washington, D.C., um, as a kind of publicity stunt. It happened again this week when um, Governor Abbott uh, sent a busload of immigrants and dropped them off in front of the official residence of the vice president, Kamala Harris at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. I think it was something like 18 degrees. Can you talk about this? Yes, definitely. I mean, um, the migrants are still being used as props on a legal fight uh, between Democrats and Republicans. Uh, uh, this group of, of migrants were sent out now to, to a place that they don't know, they have no clue where they're going. And this is completely abusive against the, against migrants. The last time we, we spoke, I followed this bus that was sent from El Paso to New York. Um, and most of the migrants didn't even want to go to New York. Uh, many of them were dropping off the, uh, the bus along the way in places that they didn't even know where they were. Um, this woman was going to, uh, to Dallas and, and he, I mean, to Miami, and she jumped off uh, in, in Dallas. It was obviously a long way to go. Um, some others jumped off in Tennessee. Um, so, I mean, they're they're sealed, and they're, they, they, the the um, U.S. policymakers are sealed, using them as props and sending them to places they either don't want to be or they have no clue that they're going to show up there. Um, and this is um, a publicity stunt to to maybe to to stop them from 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 getting here, but also to make a point against uh, Democrat-led um, states. Well, Luis Chaparro, and thank you for being with us, journalists reporting from the U.S.-Mexico border. We're going to link to your Vice News article, Migrants Surging to the Border, Pray to God for End of Title 42. Next up, we go to Buffalo, New York, which is experiencing a Katrina moment after this weekend's historic blizzard. The death toll over 31 at this point as people froze to death in their homes and cars. Stay with us. 
And that train come along When the train come along I'll be waiting at the station When that train come along When that train come along When the train come along I'll be waiting at the station When that train come along When it leaves the station gate You know it never runs late I'll be waiting at the station When that train come along When the train come along When the train come along I'll be waiting at the station When that train come along When the Train Comes Along by Elizabeth Cotton. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Returning now to Buffalo, New York, with a death toll from this weekend's historic blizzard has climbed to at least 32 as more and more victims are discovered. State and military police were deployed to Buffalo Tuesday to enforce a driving ban as road conditions remained treacherous after Buffalo was buried in more than 50 inches of snow. Many people froze to death in snowbanks as well as in their homes and cards and cars, among them a 22-year-old woman named Andell Taylor, whose family said she was stuck in her car for 18 hours before she died. Her body was found on Christmas after rescuers were unable to reach her earlier. She'd moved to Buffalo to care for her ailing father. Her family in Charlotte, North Carolina, spoke to WSOC-TV. Just after midnight at 12.09 a.m. on Christmas Eve, Andell texted another video. Inching down her window, you can see conditions completely deteriorated. Called 911, and she was waiting for them. At this point, her sister Tamisha says she began to get angry. She says it seemed no one was coming to her sister's aid. I feel like everybody that tried to get to her got stuck. Fire department, police. Why didn't they have chains on their tires? This is a state that's known for snow. That report from WKBW. As thousands were left without power, heat or food, pleading for help, Buffalo's Mayor Byron Brown complained about reports of looting. I just want to add that people who are out looting when people are losing their lives in this harsh winter storm is just absolutely reprehensible. Uh, I don't know how these people can even live with themselves, how they can look at themselves in the mirror. They are the lowest of, of the low. For more, we're joined in Buffalo by India Walton, former Buffalo mayoral candidate, longtime community activist, and Carol Horn. She's a former Buffalo police officer who was fired for stopping a white cop from choking a handcuffed black man during an arrest in 2006. 
ultimately she got back pay for um, the years she fought in court against her unjust firing. Carriola is now an activist. She was arrested Sunday night on charges of disorderly conduct, obstruction of justice and harassment as police responded to reports of looting. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Carriola Horn, let's go first to you. Uh, talk about what happened and talk about the gravity of this, the horror of the storm. Hi, Carol. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. Are you? We hear you, too. So if you can talk about what happened to you, how did you get arrested in this storm? And then the, um, the seriousness of the storm and the deaths of over 32 people at this point. Well, actually, what happened for me to get arrested is, is that I um, was driving along uh, one of the major streets, which is Bailey Street. And when I was driving down, I saw some um, uh, a car with a trunk open and there were people sitting on the ground in the snow and the police were there. So I was going to drive past, but, you know, I was saying that's not right for them to be in the snow because it was cold. They could get hyperthermia. So I don't know why the police placed them in the snow. And I went and asked, the, uh, uh, well, I got out of my vehicle and went around and um, the officer came to me and said, how can I help you? And I said, um, I know that these people probably were stealing, but you need to get them out of the snow. And he said that if I didn't stop impeding his investigation, which I was not, that I would be in the snow. And then he proceeded to point his finger into my face and then he pushed me. And then after that, then I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what I did. I think I pushed him back and he uh, picked me up, slammed me on the ground and then um, arrested me and charged me with those three charges, all because he had people on a cold wet, snowy, icy ground and didn't feel like I should have um, the audacity to ask that they not be on, on the ground. And Terry O'Horn, was it your sense that the officer recognized who you were or he was just being uh, uh, normally uncivil to any uh, civilian who might question what he was doing? I, I am not sure because when he first approached me, he was polite. And immediately that changed immediately. It's the culture of the Buffalo Police Department to treat people that way. Um, and that is why I even wrote the law, um, Cario's law, in the first place, was to try to change the culture. Um, there's people in senior citizen building. My father's 97 years old, lost power. Um, and for days, I couldn't get to him. And calling the police, they actually said they couldn't do anything. They were not answering calls. There were dead bodies. There was a dead body on the ground for like two days, and they, they're they just down the street. So how they were not able to get that body, I'm not sure. Um, but it took two days, and, and um, the persistence of just regular people to in order for them to go get that body. And that was only one of the bodies. There were bodies on the expressway, in their cars, because they were stuck. They were not prepared at all. In the senior housing, LBJ, um, I've been working with Miles Carter and David Lewis, um, community advocates, 
who and Miles is also a building, in, I mean, a, a um, housing inspector. We went in, there's water leaking from the ceilings um, onto electrical lines. I mean, we, we called the fire department and they said, well, they knew about it and that um, BMHA um, knew about it. And as far as I know, like they um, have gone into the building, but they did not evacuate those people at all. So the, these people are living in deplorable conditions with no backup generators. Um, the the body count, I think, is more than what they're saying. Um, you, if there's um, the live news crews to, to come to Buffalo, um, you should come because now it's about to um, get warm where the snow is going to melt. And I am sure the body count is going to be up there. They were the, the city was ill prepared and they basically left people to die. And they're trying to say uh, people are looting. I mean, not trying to say because it did happen, but they are trying to max the fact that they were not prepared and people died because they were not prepared. So now they want the looting to be the top story. And now they want to lump me in there to make it seem as if I was looting when they know that I was only asking them to take the people off of the snow. Because when you arrest someone, why is when is it that somebody put somebody on, on snow, on ice? You put them in a police car. It's only common sense. So now I have to face three uh, frivolous charges Knowing that I didn't do anything wrong, but the city of Buffalo has targeted me and my family, and it continues to happen even during the storm when I was out there helping people because they were not answering calls. I'd like to bring in India Walton uh, uh, to the conversation as well. Uh, Buffalo is famous for having these major snowstorms, although obviously this was a, a far greater blizzard. I wanted your assessment of how the city and the state uh, uh, were prepared or responded, especially considering that Governor Hochul is from Erie County. So if anyone knows uh, the, the problems with these storms, it is the current governor of New York. Yeah. Um, good morning, Juan and Amy. Thanks for having me on. Um, <clears throat> I think that the city's handling of the storm has been deplorable. Um, I, I do applaud Kathy Hochul for a swift response. And I think that her and her collaboration with the county executive is more of a model um, of what the people of Buffalo and Western New York should expect in the collaboration between our state and local government when it comes to at least keeping people informed. Um, I know that many state resources have come into the area, and I think folks like me, um, who've basically served as a de facto triage center, where folks are calling, DMing, emailing me to get help, we wonder where those resources are going, because it is everyday people like myself, like Cario, like the Buffalo Mutual Aid Network, who are delivering food, who are going and rescuing people, um, who are going on search missions and doing wellness checks. Um, it is the people of Buffalo, the everyday hardworking folks of this city who've been taking care of one another. And there has been an abject failure on the part of our municipal and city government to make sure that those things are, are, are being done. Um, in fact, as Cario alluded to, there's a lot of victim blaming going on. Um, the story that is being told is about looting. Um, but what I know is that 
I'm not looting because I am in a comfortable home. I have power, I have food, and I have resources. And when a community is disinvested from um, and does not have resources, you create the kinds of conditions where folks who are already in desperate situations and in needy times um, feel that more afraid that they won't be able to get their basic needs met. How many warming centers, India, are there in Buffalo uh, with this freezing cold weather? India, can you hear me? I can now. How many, how many warming centers are there in Buffalo? Um, the, the city of Buffalo had two warming centers open. And um, I live very close to a private college, so it opened its doors independently of any collaboration with the city. So, you know, there were a lot of private citizens who were opening their homes. But as far as um, any city-sponsored warming centers, I know of about two. Um, and at one point, there were 30,000 Buffalonians without power two warming centers open, no public transit, a travel ban, um, and no emergency services. 911 was basically suspended. Um, they said out of their own mouths publicly, don't even bother calling because we cannot help you. And I just don't understand how folks pay taxes, work hard, um, try and do the right thing and still receive this type of treatment. Well, let me ask you something. I mean, you're in Buffalo Bills territory. Why would we raise this now with this Katrina-like moment in Buffalo? Well, in March, New York officials approved uh, a record-breaking $850 million in public subsidies to help the Buffalo Bills build a new football stadium, the deal including $600 million from the state of New York, $250 million from Erie County. Um, your thoughts on this and um, how, what kind of money is being spent to prepare for these massive storms that are increasing? Buffalo has a public works fleet of snowplows that is inadequate. Um, those departments remain understaffed. We spend more money on policing than we do making sure we have basic resources. In fact, the Buffalo police were calling for private citizens who own snowmobiles to come help rescue people. Why Why doesn't the city have snowmobiles? Why doesn't the city have smaller equipment? Why doesn't the city have heavier equipment, right? There, there are lots of why, why, whys. But I think that when it comes to spending a billion dollars to fund, uh, you know, a billionaire's new stadium project, we need to look at the infrastructure of this city. We need to look at why we see photos of literal houses being blown over because we have the oldest housing stock in the nation. We have to look at why people are still with inadequate basic infrastructure, why people have been without power for four or five days. I think that a billion dollars is much better invested in infrastructure and adequate, safe, affordable housing and, you know, other things that keep people truly safe than it is in our sports team, which I love very much. I'm a huge fan. Um, but I just think that there are many other ways that we can better use our resources than subsidizing folks who um, could very well build a new stadium themselves if they really wanted that.
And, and India, I wanted to ask you, given uh, the, the uh, possible warming weather now, your concerns about uh, flooding and how the city will have to deal with flooding? Yeah. Um, interesting fact, the automated sump pump was invented in Buffalo. <laughs> um, the weather is warming. It's already we're already seeing a warming trend. Um, not only will there be massive flooding, there's also going to be ice and slick surfaces, slick roads. Um, the conditions are all the warm are going to continue to be very hazardous. And as of um, as of now, I've not heard any plan to deal with any of this. Um, I'm hearing reports of as the snow plows are making it down the street, as people are shoveling out, they're still finding dead bodies. Um, there are just so many things that have gone unaddressed. There are people who've been unable to get to a full service grocer in five days. There are folks who are hungry, who are cold, um, you know, people who've been stuck at work for three, four days. There are so many issues. Um, and it seems like there's um, no plan, no communication. Um, but as, as always, you know, we come together as a community and um, do as the best as we can to take care of one another. India Walton, we want to thank you for being with us. Former Buffalo mayoral candidate and community activist with Roots Action and Working Families Party. And Carol Horn, the former Buffalo police officer who in 2006 um, was fired after she stopped a white officer from putting a black man in a chokehold. In 2020, um, a Buffalo adopted Carriel's law to require police to intervene if a fellow officer uses excessive force. She was arrested again during the storm. This is Democracy Now! When we come back, as thousands of Southwest Airlines passengers remain stranded across the United States amidst an unprecedented operational meltdown, we'll get response from the Southwest Airline Flight Attendants Union and from the president of Flyers' Rights. Stay with us. All my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye, but the dawn is breaking. It's early morn. Taxi's waiting. He's blowing his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I could cry. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. I'm leaving on a jet plane. I don't know when I'll be back again. Oh, babe, I hate to go. There's so many times I've let you down. So many times I've played around I tell you now they don't mean a thing Every place I go I think of you Every song I sing I sing for you When I come back I'll wear your wedding ring So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go I'm a-leaving on a jet plane I don't 
ago Now the time has come to leave you One more time Let me kiss you Then close your eyes I'll be on my way Dream about Peter, Paul, and Mary singing John Denver's Leaving on a Jet Plane. That song was written in 1966. If it was 2022, maybe it would be called Not Leaving on a Jet Plane. No one has to hate to go because they're not going anywhere. So many thousands of passengers stranded around the country. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. After facing outrage over the lack of regulation of the airline industry, transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says he'll investigate flight cancellations and delays by Southwest Airlines that resulted in air travel chaos in the Christmas snowstorm and left thousands stranded around the United States through today. In an unprecedented operational meltdown, Southwest Airlines canceled about two-thirds of its flights since the storm. As baggage piles up at terminals around the United United States passengers are sleeping in airport hallways. The city of Houston went into emergency operations mode at Hobby Airport after more than 150 flights were canceled. There are over tens of thousands of flights that have been canceled in the last week. This is a Southwest passenger at Los Angeles International Airport. I was on the phone for like four hours um, on hold, no answer. So we woke up this morning. I said, let's just come to the airport to see what's going on. So clearly the flights are canceled, 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 and more canceled. These amazing people that have come to work, they don't deserve our frustration of having to get home. As horror stories about travel with Southwest Airlines circulated, the company's CEO, Bob Jordan, released a video apology Tuesday night. We're doing everything we can to return to a normal operation. And please also hear that I'm truly sorry. The tools we use to recover from disruption serve us well 99% of the time, but clearly we need to double down on our already existing plans to upgrade systems for these extreme circumstances. This comes as Southwest workers, union members say the company's long ignored warnings that software is out of date and unable to handle such disruptions. For more, we're joined in Chicago by Corliss King, vice president of Transport Workers Union Local 556, representing Southwest Airline flight attendants. We're also going to speak with Paul Hudson, president of Flyers Rights, the largest nonprofit airline passenger rights organization in the country. He lost his daughter in the Lockerbie bombing when she was 16 years old. We begin with Corliss King. Uh, you hear this apology uh, from the president of Southwest Airlines. We're talking about some of the largest airlines, uh, Southwest Airlines, in the country. Um, your union has said, and the uh, the pilots' union has said, that you have been warning Southwest about this for years. Talk about the problems that has caused this meltdown that other airlines do not seem to be experiencing. Ninety percent of the cancellations of all airlines are Southwest. Yes. Well, good morning, and thank you for having me. Um, it is— inconscionable to me that 
we are standing here today in 2022 when we have been sounding the alarm along with our pilots union and other unions on property that our technology issues are absolutely going to lead us to this place. We have seen this before. This is not the first time. It is the first time it's happened over a Christmas that's affected so many. But we have had issues of spinning the nine hotels that didn't have heat sometimes because of their own issues and unable to rectify those things. Spending the night on airport floors, sleeping in hallways as well. And yet we are still showing up. We are still ready to service our passengers, even under those conditions. But our union and the pilots union, and I'm sure other unions on property have been asking our company to please listen to the frontline workers who are able to tell you when your operation on paper is not working out. This is absolutely something that could have been avoidable had they listened to the people who can see immediately when the cracks in the operation begin to happen and sound the alarm over and over and over again. And it's just time that we actually invest in our people and our processes to make sure our passengers are no longer affected. Well, Corliss, could you uh, be a a little more specific in terms of what the the particular problem that Southwest has versus other airlines? Uh, uh, How does the the technology affect uh, the ability to get the crews and the pilots to the uh, to the right planes at the right times? Absolutely. So cruise scheduling, which is our heartbeat of our operation for our crews, is using technology that is not expandable to the airline we are right now. There are not enough seats and not enough expansion of those technology uh, tools to be able to say on a normal day, we have 500 people who are out of place. But due to a crisis, we now have a thousand people, 1500 people out of place. That technology has to be able to expand to meet an unprecedented situation like this. That is not able to happen. It is not our people in scheduling, for example, who answer the phone. They're doing what they can with the tools they have. It is our inability to be agile and to expand our needs as the situation unfolds to make sure that our crews get One, where they're supposed to be to work those flights for our passengers, but also to get legal crew rest, to get accommodations, to give us a place to be so that we can prepare the next day to work. Our crews are displaced to the point where Southwest doesn't even know where they are in the system. So when we as frontline workers, as as crew that is used to doing what's necessary, want to be able to say, hey, I'm here in Kansas City. You have a flight that doesn't have flight attendants or pilots. I will work that flight. We can't get through to scheduling to say we are able to help you solve the problem and get these people home. That kind of agility is lacking in our technology. And we have told them for years. We need a seat at the table. We need a contract that lets us be agile when we need to be agile and lets us protect our quality of life that says we have to be safe to fly those aircraft. So get us proper rest, get us accommodations, and we'll be able to serve our passengers. I have watched our people in tears. I flew myself on Christmas and watched our operation. And frankly, we are tired of the apologies from the executives and we're tired of apologizing to our passengers. We have to do better. And Southwest has a golden opportunity to make it right. And that's what we expect. 
I'd like to bring in Paul Hudson, president of Flyers Rights. Uh, Paul, the airline industry in America, ever since Jimmy Carter deregulated it, has, for the passenger's point of view, has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Every plane is full. Uh, whenever there is any kind of a weather emergency, there are all kinds of problems with cancellations. What do you see as the main problem? Is it that these airlines have no capacity to deal with crisis? Well, they have no capacity because it's actually more profitable to have bad service than good service. Every airline is required to have a plan to heal, deal with bad weather and other disruptions. But there's no enforcement of the plan. There are no reserve requirements. There are no customer service standards of any meaningful nature. The whole idea of deregulation was that the airlines would compete to provide better service but actually what happens today, they compete to provide more profitable but worse service. And there's a whole list of reasons why this has happened. Um, the, uh, the main one, I think, is that we don't have good leadership um, at the federal level. The airline industry is the only one that I know of that has only one regulator, the federal DOT. And they really dropped the ball for many years. Specifically, Southwest, their computer system has been obsolete for years, and that's been known. But the federal government hasn't taken any action. Computer systems today are not a frill. They're a necessity. And when they go down, there needs to be a fail-safe backup. Apparently, what happened uh, this week is that there was no backup. And the uh, manual rescheduling of flights is, is totally inadequate. Uh, Paul, on the significance of uh, Transportation Secretary and probably presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg saying he is launching an inquiry into what happened at Southwest, how much hope do you hold out in that? Um, uh, and the significance at this point of uh, him talking about people should get refunds for their flights. I mean, if it wasn't so horrifying what's happened, it would make you laugh. Refunds for flights. It is so much worse than that. People are stranded in airports. They don't have their medicine. You see thousands of pieces of luggage strewn all over airports that people can't get to. What are the rights of flyers today? Well, domestically, you have no rights to delay compensation. And if a weather is the reason for the cancellation or delay, you uh, you don't really have any rights to uh, things like hotel accommodations. It's all up to the airlines. And, of course, they'll do anything to avoid those expenses. You know, Secretary Buttigieg is, is pretty good at, at jawboning the airlines, but he's been doing it now for over a year and a half, and it's really had very little results. Um, we have proposed about 30 different solutions back in June, um, but there hasn't been any discussion, as far as we can tell, of any of those things. Uh, at Corliss King, I wanted to ask you, uh, Southwest prides itself as being an airline where all of the employees are part of the family. Uh, have you been feeling family love the, the last few days? I, I have to be honest with you. I have asked myself, Personally, many, many times over in the last several days, it, you know, am I adopted? Because I don't feel like family. And I think many people don't feel like family right now. That said, I have to say 
in full transparency, Southwest does a lot of things right. We do a lot of things right. I think that our history proves that we have a, a heart for our family and our employees. However, we have seen a huge influx of middle management that has changed us from the little airline that could to the largest carrier in this country. But we have to grow with it. We have to keep our profits um, in line with what we are producing as frontline employees. We're not sharing in that like we should. And it's not just about money. It is absolutely about the fact that we deserve the quality of life that is comparable to the contribution that we that we give. We are the forward-facing people of Southwest Airlines to our passengers. There is not one single person that buys a ticket on our airline that does not see a flight attendant. Corliss King, not- we want to thank you for being with us, Vice President of Transport Workers Union Local 556, and Paul Hudson, President of Flyers' Rights. I am Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.